0: Everybody and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Aaron Hughes, who teaches at the University of Rochester, here to talk about his new book, Rethinking Jewish Philosophy Beyond Particularism and Universalism, published in 2014 by Oxford University Press. Aaron, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Well, thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. We're very glad to have you. So the book is called Rethinking Jewish Philosophy. When people say Jewish philosophy, you know, I'm studying Jewish philosophy. What do they usually mean?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great question. And in many ways, that's what the book tries to unpack. Uh, so you take the term Jewish and the, the the particular adjective Jewish and you attach it to the universal philosophy. You get a oxymoron, I think. Uh, and for some reason, we continue to talk about Jewish philosophy. But in all the other disciplines, we never talk about Jewish X. So we don't talk about Jewish mathematics or Jewish physics, even Jewish history. But we have no problem talking about Jewish Philosophy, as if we know what it means. So the book, in many ways, is an attempt to unpack what happens when we take a particularist adjective and put it to a universal noun. And, um, and I guess the thesis of the book is the instability that, that 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 coupling creates on both sides, on the philosophy side and on the Jewish side.
0: Mm-hmm. So you have a real problem with the very idea of Jewish philosophy. Uh, why do you yeah. think it's so problematic? I think
1: it's problematic is because philosophy. philosophy in general, is about trying to uncover truth wheresoever he or it may be found. Jewish philosophy, on the other hand, tends to be about um, truth claims, about ascertaining truth claims, about defending truth claims. So to me, Jewish philosophy is more akin to what is called theology. So I ask, why not just call it Jewish theology as opposed to Jewish philosophy? Because it's not really philosophy. Of course, the answer to that is that Jews don't do do theology. That's what the Goyim do. And I'm trying to say, well, no, that's not really the case. And because Jewish philosophy is really Jewish theology, no one in philosophy takes Jewish philosophy particularly seriously.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll talk about the Academy in a minute. But you write, the nature of Jewish philosophy, like that of any other religious or ethnic-based philosophy, is ultimately grounded in impossibility. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, well... Because it's, it goes back to the, the point I just made. I think philo- whenever you put an ethnic demarcation on the term philosophy, it always ends up defending that particular ethnic or religious demarcation. So, I mean, this is where I, I think I find myself at a paradox, because although I work in the field of Jewish philosophy, I can't buy into the myth of, of the myths of Judaism. So things like chosenness, things like revelation. I just don't know what to do with those. Um so, I mean, the Torah, the Bible, for example, in my reading, makes little, little more than an interesting contribution to world literature. And I'm, I'm really not that interested in halakha. So it becomes difficult. I, I, David Novak, who I think is probably one of the most articulate Jewish philosophers writing today, although maybe I would say Jewish theologian, and I don't think he would have a hard time with that. He has a recent book where he tries to argue about the relationship between Zionism and Judaism and that any good Jew should be a good Zionist. Uh, so, I'm not a particularly good Zionist, so what Novak does is he he would probably lump me into what he calls a tinuch she or the the child kidnapped by Gentiles, and he would say the antidote to someone like me is to be immersed in a quote-unquote authentic Jewish experience. Now, I'm not sure what he means by authentic Jewish experience, and I think that too much Jewish philosophy has been trying to articulate authentic Jewish experience. And in the other parts of the academy, critical theory where I base most of my work, we never talk about authenticity. We talk about the rhetoric of authenticity. So to me, there's a huge gap between what Jewish philosophy is trying to do, which is articulate authentic Jewish experience, and what the rest of the academy is doing, which is trying to say, well, authenticity is really a constructed term that does political and ideological work.
0: So why is Jewish philosophy not in the philosophy department, and why is that a problem? Well,
1: I mean, yeah, great question, Jason. <clears throat> Most of the time, if you wanted to take a course in Jewish philosophy in the modern university, you would take it in a religious studies department. Uh, almost never. I know of no one really in a, full, in a philosophy department. I mean, there are Jews who do philosophy in philosophy department, but they're not people that do Jewish philosophy in philosophy departments. And I think that has to do with the fact two things. The first thing is that most philosophy departments in America are uh, you know, beholden to the Anglo-American analytic tradition. And you can't really do Jewish philosophy analytically. The second thing is that it goes back to the fact that very few people in philosophy departments take Jewish philosophy seriously because of the relig- religio-ethnic signifier that is appended to the term philosophy.
0: hmm so let's say someone said, you know, I'm interested in Maimonides, Moses Mendelssohn, Franz Rosenzweig, uh, Gershom Shalom, uh, uh Emmanuel Levinas. If you had your way, what department would they do that in, if a department at all? Well,
1: I mean, in, in, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem has the, the great um, rubric, uh, Machshavit Yisrael, or the, the par- Department of Jewish Thought. Uh, so in many ways, that would be Ju- Jewish thought. Of course, the Hebrew University of Interest is interesting because not only do they have a Department of, of uh, Jewish thought where Jewish philosophy is taught. They also have a separate department of philosophy where non-Jewish philosophy is taught. So again, I think that what I try to articulate in the book is these are really artificial rubrics. Why can't Jewish philosophy at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem be taught in the philosophy department in the same way, why can't Jewish philosophy in America be taught in a philosophy department? And that is because no one has really, because Jewish philosophy is for me far too, Apologetic, far too theological, and that what we have to do is begin to try to figure out what Jewish philosophy is doing. And I think the key that goes back to your earlier question is not through philosophy departments, but maybe the most natural home for Jewish philosophy in the modern academy is in departments of comparative uh, comparative literature, where um, you know people like Derrida, uh, Levinas are often uh, at Frankfurt School and all these other. Contemporary or uh, modern philosophers are taught uh, Heidegger, etc.
0: Okay, last question about the academy, and then I want to go back to the book. Are you writing from within Jewish studies?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a great question, uh, uh, and I, I never know from where I write. Um, uh, I I have a chair in Jewish studies, so I guess that puts me in squarely in the field of Jewish studies. I'm an active uh, conference goer of the Association for Jewish Studies, so I guess that puts me in Jewish studies. But I think that there's something As I've tried to to write about in other places. I had an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education a couple years ago called Jewish Studies is too Jewish. And um, I think that there are real problems in Jewish studies. Uh, it, it, It has the potential to be far too atavistic. It has the potential to be far too ethnic. uh, And it also has the potential to be far too introspective in the sense that you can read Maimonides, say, the guide of the perplexed, and not have to know Arabic. And I know very few academic disciplines where one can can pass oneself off as an expert in these things, but without really knowing the the language in which, say, Maimonides wrote the guide of the perplexed, which is Arabic or Judeo-Arabic. So Jewish studies... As I'm sure probably other uh, authors have said on this program, it's a very, it's a very uh, um, strange, strange phenomenon. And the fact that because we, study, we all study Jews or Judaism in some way, shape or form, we also have to be firmly embedded in uh, disciplinary. So my own um, Ph.D. comes in religious studies, but it's, um, I specialized in Islamic thought and culture.
0: Okay, so the subtitle of the book is Beyond Particularism and Universalism, which implies that this binary uh, has been used in the past. So how has it been used in the past, and why is it insufficient so that we need to move beyond
1: it? Yeah, well, I mean, I was always taught, um, so I, I, I think I, I, was, I always thought I knew what Jewish philosophy was. I'm, I'm just going to go back a little bit and sort of tell you how I got to the book. Um, I always thought I knew what Jewish philosophy was. Uh, I mean, I was trained in it. Um, I'd written in it unproblematically uh, until a, a couple of years ago, a colleague of mine at Arizona State University, Hava Tirosh Samuelson, and I came up with this idea of creating the Library of Contemporary Jewish Philosophers. Uh, it's a 20-volume library, and each volume looks at a particular living Jewish philosopher, uh, people like David Blythe people like um, Norbert Samuelson, people like um, David Novak, Jonathan Thacks, um, uh, Elliot Dorf, etc. And each volume has a sort of biobibliographic essay written either by us or that we commissioned someone to do, and then has four representative essays or chapters by the thinker in question, and then it ends with a transcript of a face-to-face interview. I enjoyed this very much, and I learned a tremendous amount from it. However, I was surprised how, with few exceptions, exceptions mean people like David Novak, they knew, they knew very little philosophy, but they could easily tell us what Judaism was. And more often than not, the Judaism that they articulated was their Judaism. So I began to say, well, this took me back to the idea that, that I thought Jewish philosophy was, was potentially um, apologetic. So that's, that's one thing. Now, the other thing that I'd always been taught is that Jewish philosophy represents Judaism at its most universal. Uh, and the, um, the side that, that what goes with that is that Kabbalah represents Judaism at its most particular. So I began to think, well, what if that's not the, the case at all? What if what if. Jewish philosophy is more particularistic than we than we give it credit for. So, in one chapter in the book, I look at Maimonides and I try to read Maimonides against the grain, and I argue that Maimonides ends up on one reading. And I'm not saying it's the, the normative uh, uh, reading by any uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but Maimonides can come across as a as a as a religious fundamentalist and as a very particularist thinker. So. That's one thing, another thing I think about that that binary is that in modern Jewish thought or philosophy, we tend to follow emmanuel Levinas's notion that Judaism represents the particular that shows the universal what it has to be, and again, I thought this is also extremely apologetic i mean who who says that at all that this is so so this is where I began to say well maybe maybe it's more complicated than that, so I began to um Actually, the the way out of the binary for me was uh, the thought of Jacques Derrida, in particular his um, a phrase in one of his essays where he says "Jew Greek is Greek Jew," and he, the, both of the the terms are allied. So it's capital J E W, small Greek, um, and that, that basically we can't separate the Greek from the from the from the Hebraic because the two are completely intertwined with one another, and they always have been
0: and that's a reference to the uh, standard or traditional binary between Jerusalem and yeah. Athens is that right yeah and i think
1: it's i think it's ultimately an artificial uh, an artificial uh, binary
0: mm-hmm. what do you mean when you say that jewish philosophy is heavily invested in matters of jewish peoplehood
1: yeah because i mean because jewish philosophy is in the is in the, the business of articulating good judaism right a rational judaism so it's always trying to tell jews what they should believe what is the Jewish take on, uh, you know, historically on, on science, what I mean on metaphysics? What is the, what is the Jewish take on ethics in the modern period? It might be, what is the Jewish take on science? What is the Jewish take on um, abortion? What is the Jewish take on uh, 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 stem cell research? So it's always, it always tries to attach itself to a larger discussion in such a way as to provide the quote unquote Jewish take on it. So, so that this is what Jews ought to believe. And again, it's, so that goes back to the point that I think it's apologetic because it's always in the business of saying what Judaism is. And if we were to t- go to another course in the modern university, uh, say a religious studies course or a critical theory course, it would, those courses would try to interrogate and undermine identity, how, show us how identity is uh, um, created, how it's manufactured, how it's patrolled. So if that's going on in other courses, then we get to our Jewish philosophy course and we're told that this is what Jew- this is the Jewish take on a given topic. Then I think there's a real a real tension and a real chasm between how Jewish philosophy sits within the context of the contemporary humanities and the contemporary university.
0: Mm-hmm. OK, let's go through the structure of the book. Uh, chapter one is called Impossibilities. and It's about the paradox of Jewish philosophy. Um, you, you talked a little bit about this, but maybe we can focus in sure. on it. What does it What does it mean that Jewish philosophers seek an authentic Judaism of the past?
1: Yeah. Well, what what I tried to to do in, in that in that chapter is well, the first thing I, I, we talked a little bit of, is I tried to trace the genealogy of the term. And here we I think we have to remember that Jewish philosophy is very much a modern term created by German Jews in the 19th century. And ultimately, I think the story of Jewish philosophy is the story of emancipation of assimilation and of connecting Judaism to species of European rationalism. So we have to remember then that Jewish philo- Maimonides never would have called himself a Jewish philosopher. He probably would have called himself a felsuf, which is the Arabic term for a philosopher. So despite the, the, I think the, the modern nature of the term Jewish philosophy, we have to realize that Jewish thinkers from Philo of Alexandria in, say, the first century uh, of the Common Era to Levinas in the 20th, they've always tried to connect Judaism to the larger cultures in which Jews thought, in which Jews lived. So they all sought to create what I, what I think, what I've called earlier, this, this good Judaism, and they do it through a system of privilege and denial. So in so doing, they're trying to look back to the past in order to retrieve, because the past is always seen as quote unquote authentic. So there's this attempt to go back to the past in order to retrieve that which most accords. With their articulation or their understanding of Judaism, so in that respect, I think it's an it's an imagined past. It's a past that never actually existed. So for Maimonides, for example, he has no problem saying that philosophy is a um, that Moses and the prophets came up with Aristotelian philosophy, and then the, the the Greeks subsequently stole it from from them. So for him, then, I mean, this is this is this is his authentic past that Jews in the modern period. Should go back to the, should engage in philosophy because it's an authentic Jewish uh, way of understanding the world. Whereas in fact, I mean, we know that we know that Moses wasn't a philosopher, especially an Aristotelian philosopher. So that's in that respect, I think it's always um, it's always imagined. Same with Herman Cohen. I mean, his reading of, uh, of of ethics into into the Bible, as fascinating as it is, is really not historically accurate a uh, reading, as he himself says in the introduction to the book.
0: Chapter three is uh, called Kaddish. Uh, why do you call it that? And who, who are two of the uh, philosophers that you talk about that uh, some people may not know?
1: Yeah, well, there. I mean, I, 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 we all know what Kaddish is. So there. I mean, I'm trying to. I guess what I'm trying to do is say it. You know, the traditional morning prayer over the, the traditional concepts of Jewish philosophy, trying to show how how it's an artificial category and in many ways how it's invested in the in in the notion of ethnic pride. Um, so the if anyone takes a course on Jewish philosophy the uh, same medieval Jewish philosophy they're always the same canonical figures you start with Sadja, then you get to the Neoplatonists, then you get to, to um, uh, ibn Daud who introduced aristotelianism into the process then Maimonides came along and perfected it then you have the Maimonidean controversies and then you have um, uh, uh, you know the all the later uh, thinkers so it's always the same, the same individuals that are in that. So I thought that, you know, really what we have to do is try to expand that canon somewhat. And then there's two figures in particular that I look at there that I guess are outliers to the tradition, but their inclusion is quite interesting. So one, the first is Ibn Gabarul and the second is Judah Abravanel. Now Ibn Gabarul was always thought to be a Muslim. Now it was discovered um, in the, uh, uh, in the 19th century, that well, he actually wasn't a Muslim, he was a Jew, so because he was now seen as a Jew, his work becomes a work of Jewish philosophy, in particular, I'm thinking of the Fonz Vitae, or the Makor Chaim in Hebrew, and it's an interesting book, because there's not a single reference to the Bible, or a single Jewish reference in it, so, but yet he's a Jew, so the question becomes, is that a work of Jewish philosophy, or is it just a work of philosophy written by a Jew, so he's someone who really tests, or, or tries to undermine the boundary between philosophy and Judaism, The second character is Judah Abravanel, who was a Renaissance thinker, uh, wrote in Italian. And um, it was thought that he had converted to Christianity, because this is what it said in some of the later manuscripts. Um, It was subsequently found out that those, those parts of the manuscripts were later forgeries and that he, in fact, hadn't converted. And once it was realized that he hadn't converted, he now became part of the canon of Jewish philosophy. So the, what I'm trying to ask there is, at what point is someone a Jewish philosophy? Is it, are Ibn Gabriel and Jewish, Judah Abravanel are they Jewish philosophers because they're Jewish? And are they only important after it's figured out that they're Jewish and that they had not converted outside of Judaism? Or is there something important about their ideas? And again, I think this gets to a real tension that's endemic to the study of Jewish philosophy, both in the medieval period and in the modern period.
0: Mm-hmm. Chapter 4 uh, retells the story of medieval Jewish philosophy, you say, from a different perspective. Uh, what is the inherited narrative, and what is your new perspective? Sure, yeah. The the, um, the the inherited narrative is that Maimonides is the shining exemplar of
1: medieval Jewish philosophy. So what I try to do, is, as I said earlier, is to, to really read him against the grain. So you, whereas he's often held up as the exemplar of Jewish rationalism, people are often w- willing to overlook the fact that he says that, just to give you one example, that anybody who believes that God is material or even that God has multiple attributes does not count as Jewish. And in some parts of the guide, he goes even further and it says that such people are guilty of kuf or unbelief as the Arabic term and should be put to get, put to death. So if, Maimon, if we read my if we follow through that, and if, so if we, were to enforce, if, if we were to enforce that Maimonidean position rigorously, then it would mean that, you know, in any age, our age, Maimonides' day, uh, whenever, that the majority of Jews would have to be read out of the faith. But we tend to ignore that. And why do we ignore that? Because it gets in the way of a good story. And again, that good story is not Maimonides' story. It's our story. It's the story of modern Judaism beginning in 19th century Germany. A way of constructing a rationally articulate Judaism as a way to show non-German Jews, non-Jews, that Judaism is rational and that it links up with the species of European rationalism. So if you think of the the major rubrics of Jewish philosophy in the medieval period, we have Jewish Platonism, Jewish Aristotelianism, Jewish Neoplatonism, Jewish humanism. Uh, All of these are trying to connect Judaism and Jewish thought to the larger framework of European rationalism. Mm-hmm.
0: Chapter 5 moves us into the modern period. Uh, it's about Franz Rosenzweig and his most famous work, The Star of Redemption. Tell us briefly, who is, who is Rosenzweig and, and why is he important?
1: Well, yeah, Rosenzweig is he's often seen as the most original Jewish thinker philosopher of the 20th, 20th century. So if my is seen, it, is seen as the most important um, uh, medieval rationalist, uh, Rosenzweig is seen as the most important uh, modern uh, Jewish modern Jewish rationalist. Although interestingly, his work is not is always it's it it, it won't it, it's almost anti-rational or it's it's an attempt to articulate Judaism beyond beyond reason beyond history. So I mean I, I think at the risk of offending many people that work in Rosenzweig, I tried to argue that. Certain aspects of his thought read like a form of, you know, almost an extreme religious Zionism, even though he was ultimately critical of Zionism, because for him, the Jews are inherently special. They exist outside of history. Their language is a uh, sacred language, whereas all the languages of the people of the the world are a, um, you know, profane language. So for him, the Jews are inherently special they exist outside of history, they exist outside the bonds of uh, uh, temporality, of spatiality, and they point the way to the redemption of the world. And what, the point I tried to make there is, on some levels, that's, that's how I try to connect it to it, uh, an extreme form of religious Zionism. I mean, Rosenzweig died at a very early age, before the Holocaust, it, uh, died at, uh, had ALS, but what would have happened if Rosenzweig would have survived the Holocaust and would have ended up in Israel? I think that his, his the way he articulates Judaism and Jews is extremely problematic, and most Jewish philosophers will try to, you know, go through various hermeneutical uh, uh, hula hoops to try to you know salvage uh, Rosenzweig, But I say ultimately, despite, despite the fact that he's such an original, highly creative thinker, there's an extreme atavism uh, at the heart of his work that is problematic and I think is indicative of the very category of Jewish philosophy.
0: Mhm. Okay, so you spent five chapters showing the paradoxes of the term Jewish philosophy, uh which I think is uh you know you, you would admit is um a critique, uh but the end of the book is actually constructive and you say you think you there might be a way forward uh for whatever we're going to call Jewish philosophy. Yeah to to grapple with diversity and uh, the, the academy so tell us what what the way forward is and maybe a, a way to start is is what is jewish metaphilosophy
1: yeah, that's uh that's a good that's a good point yeah um so what i i i mean what i'm trying to do with the, the concept of jewish uh, metaphilosophy and there i i i borrow the 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 term from someone who was working in metaphilosophy and that is what are the discourses that produce philosophy so what are the meta discourses and I think there's two ways to move beyond. The first way, I don't really talk about it so much in the book, but it's on a new project that I'm working on now, and that is, what, what would it look like to tell the history of Jewish rationalism through the, through the prism of the irrational? So, you know, why don't we talk about some of these problem, problematic categories in Maimonides? Why don't we focus on things like p- poetry? Why, do, why, why, why have we constructed a narrative? of Jewish rationalism that is solely rational when so many of those thinkers would have, would have had a much broader concept of the quote-unquote the rational. So that's one way. The second way I try to do is through looking at the thought of, of Derrida, and, and I think he gets at a way to get beyond all of this. So, for example, can Jewish philosophy move beyond this traditional discourse of the universal and the particular? And what I try to do in that last chapter is argue that the the discourse of Jewish philosophy has much to learn from critical theory, something I've been talking about on and off throughout our, our, our conversation here, and that it ought not to be involved in the, in the task of, of reifying Judaism. So rather than to go back to the library of contemporary Jewish philosophy, where you have a bunch of guys telling us what Judaism is, I think that philosophy and critical theory need to Undermine, not undermine, need to interrogate Judaism. What does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to, um, if, if, if all identity is constructed, then what what will happen if we import these types of discourses into um, into Judaism and into Jewish into, into Jewish philosophy? And really, I, I to me, the one of the conversation partners of that last chapter is Judith Butler, but I think. In a a more sophisticated way, because Judith Butler, I'm I'm not convinced, knows well the discourses of Jewish philosophy, even though she claims to. And and I think I've I've spent my whole life in these sources, and I I try to uh, offer a uh, a different, uh, I think, more immersed reading of uh, of the Jewish um, uh, philosophical canon. Although, like her, it's one that tries to push and tries to connect it to larger themes and critical theory.
0: Um, what is the process for writing a book like this? Uh, is it textual analysis? How do you do Jewish philosophy or Jewish metaphilosophy?
1: Yeah, I, I mean that's a good question, Jason. I, I think different, and, and having gone through ask, asking that question to twenty people, as, as my colleague and I have done in the Library of Contemporary Jewish Philosophy, uh, there's really no one way to do that. For me, uh, the way to do it is it, uh, it always has to work. Always has to reach that sweet spot between. Immersion in textual sources and engagement with critical theory. Uh, too much work on on sources will just create, you know, just more of the same old stuff that's been done for, for, for decades, centuries, if not millennia. The other thing is if you just work on the critical theory, then you can simply end up, you know, spinning theoretical wheels. So the question for me is how to combine the close reading with the theoretical sophistication. Um, I'm proud of this book. I've written several books in Jewish philosophy. Th- this one for me, uh, people might well disagree, but I, I, I that doesn't matter uh, at this point. But for me, I really think that I've tried to push the conversation along in a helpful way. And thankfully, it's had about three or four reviews, and all of them have been um, extremely uh, um Extremely good. In fact, there's one review in the the Notre Dame uh, philosophical review uh, that I think he ends up by the the, he ends the review by saying there's no doubt in my mind that the discipline would be much better off for having engaged with my book. So Mm -hmm. that's the um, that's where I'm that's what I'm trying to to do is push the conversation, because I, I really think Jewish philosophy, maybe even like Jewish studies, is a little bit is at a crossroads. And we have to figure out what will the future of, of Jewish philosophy look like in, in the academy? Will it be a, a, a study that is out of sync with what's going on in other disciplines? In, in which case it becomes it will just become a, a, a yeshiva-like activity. And I don't want that to happen. I think that Jewish philosophy needs to connect with the themes of the academy, and whether medieval studies, contemporary studies, critical theory, uh, etc. mm mm-hmm.
0: Well, Aaron, we've taken up a lot of your time. So, any parting thoughts you'd like to share? And uh, you told us a little bit, but just um, tell us what are you working on next?
1: Well, I'm. I'm actually. Uh, I have. I have a book that's already. It's been accepted. It's uh, coming out in the. Uh, uh, I think in the summer, the coming summer. It's, it's a uh, biography of Jacob Neusner, Uh it's something I've been working on for the past four years. Um, I've had access to Neusner, I've had access to his archives. Access to his family, his friends uh and it's and it's really an attempt to tell the story of Jewish studies through the prism of the story of his life because uh whether we agree with Nussner or not i don't think it can be gainsaid that Nussner is probably the most important thinker uh in Jewish studies in America. He basically created the field. So um, in many ways, that uh, biography is a um, continuation of a book that I published a couple years ago called The Study of Judaism, Identity, Authenticity, Scholarship, which is an attempt to look at some of the the themes, uh, problems uh, um, uh, of of Jewish studies in the the Contemporary Academy.
0: Aaron, that sounds like a great project. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Rethinking Jewish Philosophy. Beyond Particularism and Universalism, published in 2014 by Oxford University Press. The author is Aaron Hughes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at NewBooksJudaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, Studies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.